0: This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit candowealth.com for more information.
1: Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor. On this week's episode, I'll be talking about the future of Joe Biden, the intellectual legacy of Pope Benedict XVI, and the rise and fall of agony aunts. First up, in his cover piece for the magazine, Freddie Gray asks whether anyone can stop Joe Biden running for a second term in 2024. He joins me now alongside Amy Parnes, senior staff writer at The Hill and co-author of Lucky, how Joe Biden Barely Won the Presidency. Freddie, to start with, in your piece, you say that six months ago, there were rumours in democratic circles that Biden might not run for a second term. However, now the prevailing view in Washington is that Biden will run for re-election. Why has the mood changed? Well, as I also said in the piece, I think with it,
0: the prevailing view in Washington is almost either always either wrong or a lie. So you have to bear that in mind. But certainly, I've been speaking to people in Washington in the summer, and then before that, actually, and actually, ever since Joe Biden became president, there has been this will he won't he stand again, question, will he run again in 2024. And the answer a while ago, I'd get from various people who know the Democratic Party inside and out, is that they thought, yes, they, they would, they, he probably would be persuaded to move aside. But, and you, you could also tell it from the New York Times and Washington Post and the sort of the editorials they choose to do, the, the sort of mood inside democratic circles. And then I think essentially what happened is over the summer, uh, a lot of Democrats started to talk about Biden's winning streak. And this was partly because he passed some legislation. He spent vast amounts of government money or committed to spending vast amounts of government money. And it was also a little bit to do, which is of interest on a sort of global scale, a little bit to do with the fact that the the war in Ukraine started to turn against Russia. And Biden has taken quite a lot of credit, again, in certain circles. He's faced a lot of criticism in other circles, but credit in democratic circles for having supported Ukraine, but not got America involved in a quagmire like Iraq or Afghanistan. And of course, he did withdraw America from Afghanistan. And then after the sort of the good news streak in the summer, which was slightly spin, there were the midterms, which did show that the Republicans were still self-destructing. There was a popular reaction to the Supreme Court's overturning of Dobbs. And Donald Trump reared his orange head again. And so the midterms went reasonably well, they still lost, but they had a good a good streak. So that's why I think they're now I'm sorry, it's a very long-winded answer. But uh, that's why I think Team Biden now thinks that 2024 is on the cards and that he may even announce quite soon.
1: Well, Amy, you suggest in a recent article you wrote for The Hill that Biden is in a bit of a conundrum. Uh, and despite the fact he's doing relatively well, this winning streak, uh, as Freddie just said, his own party doesn't really want him, and yet they're stuck with him. Uh, why? Why is that?
2: That That's a really interesting question. And I kind of posed that to a lot of people recently um, because every poll that has been taken essentially says the, uh, the party does not want uh, Biden or Trump rematch. Um, they they just don't want it. Everyone's turning their heads away from that kind of thing. And so it is an interesting conundrum. And I think a lot of it is because Freddie is right. He, they are sort of in this they they keep saying they had they've had this winning streak lately, and a, a, I think a lot of Democrats would agree with that. And also because I think mostly if Joe Biden doesn't run, then who? That's the big question right now. And I think the bench here. Um, as Freddie says in his piece, um, a lot of Democrats acknowledge they don't think Kamala Harris, the vice president, is ready for prime time. They don't think that she's had a good run as, as vice president. In fact, it's been kind of underwhelming for her. And they look elsewhere. They look at someone like Gavin Newsom, who's not very well liked. I think Democrats like that he's sort of punching Republicans in the face and doing kind of interesting things. But is that really enough? to make him the Democratic nominee. I don't think so. And then someone like Pete Buttigieg, he's also one of the go-to people for many Democrats, but also a lot of people think that, you know, a, a gay man can't really make it in this sort of environment, can't win, maybe could win the Democratic nomination, sure, but probably couldn't win the presidency. So I think all of this is sort of at play right now. And that's when Democrats are looking at the full landscape, they are kind of, in a way, stuck with Joe Biden, who is also, by the way, making the argument that he is really the only one who can beat Donald Trump. He did it before. He can do it again. The problem is, what if it's not Donald Trump? What if it is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis? Can he beat Ron DeSantis? And that's sort of the next question a lot of people are asking.
1: And Amy, this when it comes to this winning streak that that Freddie mentioned. Do you see that coming to an end for Biden now that the Republicans have a majority in the House of Representatives? Or are the Republicans so self-destructive at this point when I mean, we've seen these failures to get a, a speaker elected for the House of Representatives? Do you Do you think actually Biden could still continue to be in quite a strong position throughout uh, this year and maybe even going into the election uh, next year.
2: Well, if you looked at the split screen this week, you had the, the House of Representatives in complete disarray, and then you had Biden out there with uh, Mitch McConnell, by the way, the Senate minority leader, out and eating, you know, he was eating barbecue yesterday when when all of this was happening. And, and that, to, to a lot of people, was kind of amusing. Like, here he is, the president, he sort of... Chuckling quietly um at all the pandemonium happening on Capitol Hill while he is out having uh some barbecue in, in this in the deep south. Um and so I think I'm curious to see how this all plays out in the end. I think both parties have their own problems. Um I think Biden's age um will continue to be a big question for Democrats. Um, If he does pull this out, and he does secure the nomination, he will be 86 years old coming out of this. And that, you know, if you ask Democrats, are they concerned about that, and they're being honest, I think a lot of people will say yes, they are quite concerned about that. And so I think all of this will will continue to kind of uh, poke him if you will as he's as he continues to run and and he is supposed to announce a run in the coming weeks before the state of the Union who knows wh- how when that will be right now but he's supposed to announce he's running and that will continue to be a question that I think he faces in the coming months when he do- after he does announce his candidacy.
1: Well, Freddie, I wonder if I could ask your opinion about Biden's age, because it certainly there was a time, you know, four years ago or so, where to to sort of mention uh, concerns about Biden's age in a podcast or in an article was sort of often uh, shut down as a kind of Trumpist talking point. But as as Amy said right there, it does seem that now even there are even uh, Democrats who, who are voicing concerns about it. I mean, do you think that will be a concern for American voters going ahead, thinking about how? How old he will be at the end of a second term if he gains a second term, yes. I mean, there's only uh,
0: so far you can go, just sort of flat out denying that he's getting very old because it's so palpably true that he is getting very old, and no one wants to be sort of you know morbid about it or anything like that. But, um, he's he's not a young 80 year old, he's quite an old 80 year old, and 80's pretty pretty old. I mean, we just had Pope Benedict who uh retired. And the papacy aged 85. Biden, in theory, could be 86 as leader of the free world. So, it's, I mean, I think those concerns are real. Going back to what you were discussing earlier, I think he may actually, one of the reasons he may be feeling optimistic about 2024 now is that he no longer, uh, the Democrats no longer have the House because he will remember the Obama years when he was vice president. And Obama got quite popular again through blaming the Republicans for blocking everything. And that's where Biden, I think, is in his element, where he is able to claim bipartisanships, meet Mitch McConnell, act like the great, you know, reaching across the aisle stuff, and then blaming the Republicans for actually not cooperating. That's Biden's real comfort zone. And I think he will be, he may well be able to do it, despite his uh, increasing decline in cognitive faculties.
1: And as as Amy said there, if you look at the kind of um, possible alternatives to Biden, who might potentially be a Democratic nominee, I suppose that the, the great advantage for Biden is how uncredible the the alternatives are. I mean, you suggest in your piece that Kamala Harris may have in a way, a funny sort of way, be the perfect choice for Biden as a vice president, because she is so unpopular throughout the country. She actually doesn't pose a threat. I mean, would you say she is just firmly out of the race for any kind of democratic nomination now.
0: I I don't think she's firmly out of it it, at all, because, of course, you're still only as vice president, you're still only one heartbeat away. And Joe Biden is getting very old. And if he has to resign because of a health problem, she will be the natural and obvious successor. I think that worries a lot
1: of Democrats uh, because she polls so terribly. About four years ago, Biden even said about himself that he was he was a he was going to paved the way. I can't remember the exact phrase he used, but he essentially said that he was a transition president. He would open up the way for, for newer newer leadership. And that obviously doesn't seem to be what he wants to do anymore. Is that just because of the, the total void of, of potential people who could take over from him
0: well it's interesting you say that because I've always thought that he said something like placeholder president I don't think he said placeholder but he made some a couple of comments that sort of suggested that and what was interesting I think is a lot of the pro-democratic media read into that quite eagerly because I think they knew that he's not a he's not a two-term president or he shouldn't be a two-term president but I'm not sure in Biden's mind he ever really thought for certain that he would be stepping down after one term and uh, I don't think he will
1: and Amy, what kind of campaign do you think Biden will run in twenty twenty four if indeed he confirms soon that he he will run as as he is expected to to do so um in his successful campaign last time around, he ran as a unifier, but it does seem that a lot of the rhetoric since his inauguration speech has well i wouldn't say ab- abandoned that tone altogether but it it certainly seems uh, uh perhaps more divisive than than people might have. Hoped for? Could could he credibly run on that as a as a ticket again? I mean, how how was he going to? How is he going to to fight it next year?
2: I think he'll he'll continue to. He's sort of given us a preview. I think lately about how he will run a. campaign, I think a lot of it will be using the Republican House as a foil in a way to say, look, I couldn't get as much done this time because of the Republican House. Um, Also running against Donald Trump, even if it's someone like Ron DeSantis, he'll kind of make he's already said Ron DeSantis is kind of Trump incarnate. He's he's used these words already. So he's already kind of framing how he will run his campaign, how he'll he'll say that, you know, even. Ron DeSantis is like Donald Trump. We have to protect our democracy. Our democracy is at stake. Our democracy is on the ballot. I think that you will hear continue to hear all of these phrases. And I think he thinks that it's effective. And he was able to win the first time because of because of this and he can win again. And that is sort of what he's been telling people inside the White House, outside the White House, anyone who will listen, that he was the one who was able to do it. He said as much in 2016 with Hillary Clinton, he, he was the one who was actually saying, if I w- were the candidate, I would have th- I would have beaten him because she didn't play well in states like Wisconsin and other places where Democrats typically win. And he had a point there. And so I think he'll continue to kind of use that old Biden playbook, that he is sort of a unifier and he wants to be a unifier, but he is trying to help the democracy. And um, and, and that's sort of what you'll continue to hear.
1: And final question to, to both of you, uh, starting with you, Amy, if, if you don't mind. But you said earlier on this podcast that the polling shows that the American people do not want a rematch between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Is that what they're going to get?
2: I have a feeling that if if Donald Trump pulls this off, it's because multiple Republicans are in the, the uh, race for the nomination, and his base is still pretty solidified, and they they back him. But as we saw with uh, even the race for the speaker this week, you know he doesn't have as much power as he used to, and that's that's sort of the point. And so I think if if Ron DeSantis if if he is up against Ron DeSantis, I think he will lose against him. I think the Republican Party will get behind someone like DeSantis because he doesn't have he isn't mired in lawsuits and he doesn't have the sorts of problems that Donald Trump as and um but he is still sort of in that he's still very trumpian he he represents he kind of went right up the the alley of the culture wars and and tapped into that, and that's very appealing to a lot of Republicans who think that Trump kind of lost his way there yeah i think I think that I, it might be still be a donald trump Joe Biden rematch, but depending if it's if it's just a one on one race with DeSantis, I don't think he makes it, but if it is. If it's more than that. If there are other people that jump in, I think Donald Trump still holds.
1: And Freddie? Uh,
0: well, I think emmy is absolutely right that Joe Biden wants there to be a fiercely contested Republican primary process. And uh, d- 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 what he also wants is for Donald Trump to feature in it very, very prominently. I think one of the most interesting dynamics of the next few weeks and months will be what the Justice Department, which is, of course, led by Biden, does to Donald Trump. Do they prosecute him? Uh, on the various charges against him? Um, Or do they make it go as slowly as possible, knowing full well that the longer Donald Trump is, is the loudest voice in Republican politics, the better off it is for the president? So I think it is quite likely that we will have Trump and Biden again, even if a lot of people are already dismissing Donald Trump. But people have done that rather too much in the past and often been
1: wrong. Thank you, Freddie and Amy. Next, For the magazine this week, Father Patrick Burke writes a moving tribute to the late Pope Benedict XVI, focusing on his theological work and intellectual legacy. He joins me now. Father Patrick, could you start by telling our listeners how you came to know Cardinal Ratzinger as he was then?
3: Well, um, obviously, since he died, we've been reflecting quite a lot about, I I suppose, lots of people reflecting about Cardinal Ratzinger. And it occurs to me that in many ways, you see, he was like a, a backdrop almost to the whole of my adult life. I, I left school in 1982 and went to study theology at St. Andrews. And I, I think that the the, the famous book, interview, An Interview with uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, was probably the first book I bought and probably the first book that I really read from my own steam that I wasn't forced to read at school. And ever since then, he was, he was for me and for many people, a, a, a kind of hero. He was the first person who really said out loud, a, a person with authority in the church, that everything since the Second Vatican Council had not been blindingly mm-hmm. wonderful. And he was really the first person, because for almost sort of 15 years, the sort of Pravda line that went out and that I had grown up with was that, you know, since the Second Vatican Council, the church was in an absolutely fantastic state and everything was getting better and better. And Cardinal Ratzinger was the first person who actually said something which, uh, you know, resonated with our experience as young people, which was that the church was disintegrating in front of our eyes. And his intellectual analysis of that, which was charitable and kind and was not hysterical, was a remarkable was a remarkable achievement. And from then onwards I was interested in him. So I read I read a lot of his stuff when I was at university. Then I went to seminary. And seminary, again, I mean he was he was an extraordinary figure. He was there in Rome. He was not at all unapproachable, you know. I mean he used to walk to and from his office across Peter's Platz, as they called it, across St. Peter's Square, every day. And um, you could always catch him. I mean, he was like clockwork. So, I mean, if you wanted to speak to him, you could just go and, and stop him in the in the square and speak to him. And he was always very uh, open and charming. And so, uh, w- we had fairly liberal staff at the at the college, and I was in charge of the debating society. And so, I asked the rector, could we invite Cardinal Ratzinger to come and speak at the college? And it was very interesting, you know, he said, oh yes, I respect Cardinal Ratzinger, you know, he's a real, he's, you know, he's a real intellectual, he's got something to say. So I just wrote, I mean, typical, you know, sort of arrogance of a sort of, you know, young 21-year-old 20, or something, I just wrote to Colonel Ratzinger and said, would you come to the college? And he said, yes. <laughs> and he came. <laughs> and like so many of these people who have, I found in life, so many of these people who have this reputation of being terrifying or whatever, it's all just, Absolute rubbish. He was the type of person if you met him, you couldn't help liking him, and he was the sort of person who would come into a college and go, you know, go into the kitchen and talk to the cooking staff. Again, what I said in that article, it occurred to me. You see, the thing was he was confident intellectually, and so there was nothing he was afraid of uh, intellectually, you know, and he's quite prepared to debate about anything. So there was nothing. There were no no sort of issues which were offline or which you weren't allowed to to raise with him. Anyway, to answer your question, that was my first real personal encounter with him. Well then I went to the college and the German college in the nineties and that's where I really sort of got to know him. But I'm not claiming to be a friend of his. You know, he he was in a, a different league of uh, I, I just happened to know him you know and and he, just, did he know who I was yes he did but I mean was he phoning me up for a chat every day certainly not. <laughs> uh,
1: well, you mentioned you mentioned there the reputation that that he had that you think was a very false one you know he had these nicknames that we've all read about in the media the Panzer Cardinal the uh, God's Rottweiler I mean why do you think there was this perception of him was it because of ideological opposition or just a total misunderstanding of of his nature? I mean, how do you think he gained this this reputation that, that, as you say, you found so contrary to the man as he was? Again, I
3: think, to be honest, it was what I said in that article, that people who didn't meet him... You see, it's a mixture of both things. So, first of all, it's primarily ideological. What they're doing is they're attacking the person for saying what he's saying rather than engaging with the person about what he's saying. So it's just much easier just to rubbish the person. You know, what Cardinal Ratzinger was saying was always eminently reasonable and was always eminently arguable and debatable. And he was there for the debate. So this whole idea that he was a panzer cardinal, it was because he was the first person really to say, look, there are limits. First person, the post-conciliar church. So what, what I mean is the church after... The, the council finished in, in 66, and then we had a period of sort of 10 to 15 years. And then Karl Ratzinger emerged. Remember, he was made a bishop in 77, and then he came to Rome in, in 1980. And he was, he was saying things which it was unusual to say. And instead of people engaging with him, and the commentators engaging with what he was saying, they just sort of, they just rubbished him, because they didn't want to hear what he was saying, I think. You know, so it was never based on reality. It was never based on a on a personal encounter with Carmen Ratzing. I don't know if you've seen many of the things which have come out in the in, in this week, you know. I mean, say for instance there I, I saw Melanie Mc McDonough had a piece yes uh, you know w- where she quoted from Timothy Radcliffe now Timothy Radcliffe be one of the leading liberals in the church you know who had himself trouble with the the cdf um, the congregation of the doctrine of the faith and had to answer questions and all the rest of it there's a great quote in her article from Timothy Radcliffe who said that he enjoyed meeting Cardinal Ratzinger more than any, almost anyone else in the Vatican because you could talk to him and and so I think anyone who who met him liked him. The only people who say these sort of things are people who didn't who didn't meet him, and they were basing their comments on the fact that they just didn't want anyone to say what he was saying, if you see what I mean.
1: Yes, there's a. I like it that in your piece you mention his his love of music, and we have as well in in the magazine this week. Sir James Macmillan has written the, the diary, the Spectator diary, in which he says that I mean he feels like he owes a debt, or or musicians as a group owe a debt to Pope Benedict because uh, what he says is is that it's sort of odd actually, but but the, the defence of traditional Catholic music, liturgical music that Benedict was defending after Vatican II, all those sorts of arguments were prophetic for the kind of secular culture war that we're now seeing play out in Britain across our institutions, you know, um, people who won't defend heritage and tradition of music. I mean, what do you make of of that argument that actually it's not just uh, believers who owe this debt to the sort of arguments that Karna Ratzinger was making back in the 60s, but it's actually everyone.
3: I think he was a very serious intellectual and therefore he contributed to the to the intellectual debate that was going on in the world and in Europe especially on the faith and reason issue in the latter part of of the 20th century and so i think in that sense you know anyone who's intelligent and is, and would, would would be interested in what he was saying to just cut in and say to that remember that the problem was that You know, most intellectuals, most academics reach a sort of high point in their 50s. You know, they work toward and then they become very prophetic. You know, somebody like Kant never really wrote anything before he was 60. Cardinal Ratzinger was made a cardinal just at the very moment, really, I think, when he was about to bring everything together. And he never really got that. Um, he never really got that opportunity to bring it together so what we have are tantalizing traces you know but in the stuff that he wrote subsequently which is always a little bit bitty because he was you know he was doing this massive job and so what he was writing was sort of sermons and meditations and stuff his meditations are really really interesting about the nature of culture about the nature of politics uh, about the human community and the nature of human beings. And so, yes, I think he, he was saying a, a, a great deal. Even as Pope, you know, that extraordinary phrase, you know, the, the tyranny of relativism, you know, in a sense he went right to the very, you know, it was just a phrase, but he, he went right to the very core of the whole problem. Modern secularism can very easily become tyranny, you know, in their espousal uh, of liberalism they can become tyrannical. And and I think, you know, in the modern debates, we see that, you know, we're simply now being forbidden to hold opinions and forbidden to even think these opinions and threatened with law to moderate, you know, what we think. Uh, I think, you know, tyranny of relativism was a very good phrase. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. And just finally, the the impression I get of Cardinal Ratzinger from your article was of it of a man who's very very shy that comes up a few times in your article and sort of reluctant in a way to do the the roles that he's he's called to do because of he finds as you say that the notoriety surrounding him painful do you think that may have played a a role in his decision to abdicate the papacy in 2013 or do you think it, it was uh, it was other factors at, at play um
3: i think i think you you know there's no doubt he was a very shy man He's a very fine human being, if you know what I mean. He was a very refined person, and he did not, didn't spill his guts. You know, he 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 wasn't a person who would blurt out his feelings. He didn't have many friends. You know, he was very close to his family. He was very close to his. Well, I didn't know his sister, but I knew his brother. He was very close to his brother, and they they were very fascinating. I mean, his brother was brother was garrulous you know and much more up for a good gossip about everything and and Ratzinger Ratzinger was a very reserved person and he us really saw him relax with his brother they loved each other he was very very shy again anyone who knew him would know I mean this was a man who never ever sought it you know if he had any vanity it was intellectual vanity I think, did he want to be a great theologian? Yes, he did, yeah. Did he, you know, did he want to be a great philosopher? Did he want to be a bishop? Absolutely not. Did he want to be head of the, the Congregation of the Rotterdam? Absolutely not. But he did what he was asked to do. And when he was asked to be Pope, he did that as well. I think there was a combination of factors involved in, in his resignation. I mean, I don't know if you know, but he was looked after as Pope by a, a, a group of four nuns and one of them was very young, and Ratzinger was not like Pope John Paul. Pope John Paul used to have lots of people to dinner all the time, lots of people to lunch, and Ratzinger didn't do that. He was shy. He had breakfast, lunch, and supper with these four women uh, day in, day out, and they were very close, because as I say to you, I'm not making it up when I say, everyone who met him loved him, you know, so they were devoted to him. Anyway, the young one, she she used to, you know, obviously they went out and did stuff and got on with their lives, you know, uh, when they weren't working. And she, she, she walked out of the Vatican one day, shortly before he re- re- resigned, a few months before he resigned, and got knocked over by a car and got killed instantly. And I think that really shook him. You know, he was an old man. That was difficult. And the thing with the butler was awful for him. You know, it was just awful to find out that, you know, you had this person who you trusted, you know He's a butler, he was the guy who went around and cleaned up and dusted and, you know, got his clothes ready and things, you know, and to find out that this man had been taking dozens of photographs of the documents on it, I think he felt, if you ask me, but this is just absolutely personal, I think it was a culmination of circumstances, and he just felt that he, he didn't know who to trust. He wasn't an administrator, you know, he was an extremely impractical man, I mean, you know, we used to joke about it. Like, if there was a bulb gone in it, you, he wouldn't have a clue how to, how to read it. I mean, he, he, was well, he was extremely impractical. And I think, you know, so he wasn't a good administrator. It was, it's an impossible job being pope. I think he felt he didn't know who to trust. He didn't know who was, you know, I don't know. I don't, that's just perhaps rubbish for me. <laughs> but I, it, I think it was not so much that he was just shy or that he was afraid of criticism. I think it was much more personal for him and a feeling that he was going to go senile, lose his mind, which didn't happen and he didn't want to be in the position of being Pope, you know, if he started to go to go senile or whatever.
1: Thank you, Father Patrick. We are also very lucky to have the frequent spectator contributor Menly McDonough, joining us now from Rome, where she has been attending the funeral of Pope Benedict. She has kindly sent us some reflections on the day's proceedings and is dialling in from St. Peter's Square, so please do excuse any background noise.
4: There was a curious sense of facing two ways in the congregation in St. Peter's Square for Pope Benedict's funeral. We were watching the pass as it happened, the procession of the bishops in Scarlet, the arrival of Pope Francis, the placing of the coffin in front of the altar. But the great screens to either side meant we watched the procession from behind and also watched ourselves, the congregation, on the screen. It was a huge friendly crowd, and multilingual. Lots of Germans, of course, lots of Italians, and people from everywhere else you can think of. The Mass itself was in Latin, which people followed from their orders of service. If ever there were a case for Latin as the universal language of the church, this is it. The one point at which almost everyone joined in the singing was for the familiar hymn, the Salve Regina. What was evident everywhere is the diversity of the church. There are little groups of Bavarian foresters in their huntsman hats behind a huge banner, the multifarious orders of nuns from the Brigittines in their hot cross-bun veils, to their Ursulines in bright blue from Brazil. There are the Franciscan flowers in brown or grey, the Dominicans in black and white. Then there are the military orders, mostly lay people, wearing the capes and crosses of the old crusader orders. And there was the endless variety of uniform, proving that the smaller the state, the greater the pomp. The Swiss guards were in ceremonial uniform, harlequin colors, and other guards wore capes and swords. At the start, the organizers asked that people didn't hold up their flags and banners. It didn't work. The little figure of Pope Francis was at the center of it all, wheeled out in a wheelchair as the choir sang the requiem. I look at him, the woman next to me exclaimed. It is a striking anomaly. A pope saying a mass for another pope with all the pomp the modern church can muster, but the embodiment of frailty. It's freezing in the square. The pope had a scarlet cape, but even he looked cold. Communion was a scrum, with people coming and going across the banks of seats. I struck firmly behind a couple of Franciscan nuns who knew what they were doing. There was a succession of priests coming to give communion to the faithful most under little papal umbrellas of yellow and white. The most poignant moment came when one pope saluted the other. Francis bowed to the coffin of Benedict and laid his hand on it and stood for a few moments in prayer. At the end, a few people shouted noisily, Santo Subito, or Saint Now, the same thing that happened at the funeral of John Paul II. It was a curiously discordant element in the funeral of rather a humble man as one German couple from Bavaria observed. He wouldn't have wanted it. But at the end, there was a joyous element as the crowds cleared to make space for a line of almost 50 marching companies of Germans from Bavaria, representing the places which Benedict would have known. The men in hats with feathers, in knickerbockers and huntsman jackets of gray or green. The women in hats and aprons carrying flowers and the men at the front bearing the most enormous banners with a virgin and child, and they marched to what was once one of the most common sounds of Europe, a German band. Thank
1: you, Melanie. Finally, in the magazine this week, Tanith Carey, author of Never Kiss a Man in a Canoe, Words of Wisdom from the Golden Age of Agony Aunts*, has written a celebration of the high-handed and unflinching advice of Victorian agony aunts. She joins me now, alongside the spectator's very own agony aunt, Mary Killen, a.k.a. Dear Mary, Tanith, could you start by explaining to our listeners how the agony aunt became a phenomenon in the Victorian era, and why you think that, and why you think that the strict agony aunt has fallen out of fashion now?
5: Well, the first agony aunt column was invented by a publisher by the name of John Dunton in um, 1691. He was having an affair, and he wanted to sort of rake through the morals of his situation. And he basically started posting anonymous letters in his own magazine this prompted other inquiries from readers on matters not just of the heart but of philosophy or mathematics so letters for those early postcard ba- bags might have included things like what is a cloud or does a flea bite as well as sting and is it moral for a woman to wear makeup to trap a man into marriage so these were f- fairly wide ranging issues. And um, he was quite hilarious in that he claimed to have a moral a p- a panel, a special panel of moral experts, which he actually pictured in a woodcut, looking very serious, when in fact he was really running the postbag bar- past his mates down in the coffee shop. <laughs> but this proved such, such a huge success with readers and also a very easy way to fill editorial pages, that within three years he had started an entire separate magazine just for agony aunt issues um, and for women and by women. So that's when it started. But really it took off in the Victorian era after the Education Act when children started to learn to read and write and there were more readers for popular magazines and newspapers. So that's when... And also you have the Victorian Morality Code coming into play. So that's sort of mix of sort of like Christian and middle-class ethics. And agony aunts at that point thought their job was strictly not really to help readers, but really to keep them in line and help them to stick to these incredibly strict moral codes.
1: You 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 have some excellent examples in the piece of some of the from a modern perspective very harsh responses. I wonder if you have a particular favorite that you that you came across during your uh, research for your book.
5: Yeah, I have so many favorites, it's incredible. I mean one of my f- I love the fact that they are basically verbal buckets of cold water. I mean, they are absolutely bracing, withering responses. So one of my favourite ones was from a love uh, was to a girl in 1895 who wrote to a magazine called Girls Own, and she asked whether or not it was suitable for her to go out on a boat trip with a young man. And her the reply was, it surprises us to find that a girl sufficiently educated to write and spell well should be so deplorably ignorant of the common rules of society to think that she may go out alone with a young man in a canoe, and furthermore one that she only knows slightly. <laughs>
1: And 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 Mary, I wonder, as the spectator's own agony aunt, mm. uh, how would you describe the type of advice that you give to the to the readers you write in? Do you think that you're more on the sympathetic side, or do you do you identify with the with the the strict Victor- Victorian agony aunt of of old? Because I mean, your role is is rather to keep keep our readers on the straight and narrow. I would say rather like these Victorian agony aunts.
6: I think that. Over recent years, I've been specializing more in social dilemmas rather than etiquette because etiquette isn't what it was. Rules don't apply in the same way they once did because society is now full of non gentlemen. But social dilemmas are always coming up, and you know, the core readers want to know how they can behave tactfully and extricate themselves from difficult situations without being rude Hmm.
1: can you talk our listeners through your process when you receive a a letter or email as i'm sure it is nowadays how do you get to the root of their problem when, when when you read them
6: well what happens is during the week rather like private eye. A lot of the material comes to me. People approach me at parties or they ring me as well as the readers writing in. And so I've constantly got in my mind what sort of things are causing problems. For example, you know, people posting tactless Instagram pictures of themselves having a good time and suddenly realizing they've offended somebody that kind of thing um always a perennial problem is i haven't been invited to so-and-so's party what have i done wrong how can i find out that sort of thing and another problem that comes up all the time is i went out to lunch with two very rich men and they made me split the bill they know that i work as a typist
1: well- Tanith, some of these social dilemmas that Mary is describing, I don't see them as necessarily a million miles away from the types of dilemmas that, that young women in, in um, the golden era were, were writing in. I mean, but, um, the responses may not be as, uh, as harsh now as they, as they were then. But are some of these problems you highlight in the piece, I think, are, are somewhat, um, you, you could describe as social dilemmas, don't you think?
5: Absolutely. I mean, this is what made the book fascinating because it showed that human la- nature doesn't change. It's only the rules that govern it. So you still have, you know, looking for love, feeling left out, not feeling attractive enough, marital rows, rejection, jealousy, all those kind of things. But I mean, what changed was how women were told to deal with that so i mean there's no very little sisterhood and why
1: and, and so why why did that change do you think why did the strictness of agony aunts sort of fade away
5: right so when i researched the book i found that agony aunts didn't really feel it was their job to soothe the feelings of correspondence it was more to uphold the moral tone of the publication at a decent tone and also beyond that the moral tone of the nation and so what i found was was that right up until the 1960s women were told to be ready at the door looking pretty for their husbands not to ask their husbands to do the washing up because that was uh that they tricked them into marriage and then asking them to share the chores was totally unfair thing to do what changed was the early 60s and the mid-60s when contraception came in and i think agony aunts realized that they couldn't keep the cat in the bag any longer and they basically just gave up and just had to go with the flow but that to me was the big break that's when it all changed then you have people like marge Proops and um, those kind of people just being and claire rainer and being more open about sex i mean until then i mean you couldn't even mention the word bottom in an agony aunt and even if it was even if it was the bottom of the garden i mean they were so prudish and if correspondents did have matters of a sexual nature they were not to be discussed in the magazine they were answered via the medium of a letter in a brown paper envelope And
1: Mary, in the in the years that you've been the spectators, agony aunt, I wonder if you have particular favourite problems that have been shared with you, or, or particularly memorable ones that have that have stuck with you.
6: I had a, a one that I liked, which was an American woman wrote in saying, "I've lived in England for twenty years, yet." This was about 20 years ago. Lived in England for about 20 years. And I find it annoying when, for example, I'm at a party and I mention the name of somebody like, for example, the Duchess of Devonshire or Geoffrey Bernard. And my interlocutor says to me, but how do you know Deborah Devonshire? (laughs) (laughs) And um, I thought I could imagine that happening very well. And um, my reply was, pause and then say pleasantly why do you ask would you like to get to know her
1: (laughs) that's very good (laughs) I wonder as well if there's any advice that you've you've given that you've that you've subsequently regretted or maybe even instances where the advice that you've given has come back to haunt you in some kind of way
6: yes there was a terrible one which was a man wrote in saying he worked in an office in Australia and his neighbour in the next office had a cuckoo clock, which was driving him completely mad. And it uh, came out screeching every 15 minutes as well as on the hour. And what could he do? And my solution was to wait till the office was empty, sharpen the bird's beak with a pair of nail scissors, extend the spring, and it wouldn't be too long until the clock was taken down of its own accord and then three weeks later I got a letter from a man saying my late mother gave me a cuckoo clock uh, um which I've you know treasured one day I came into my office and found it on the ground it's spring having you know anyway it had broken and come off the wall and then my attention was drawn to the letter you published in the spectator and I'm oh afraid you've no.
1: caused a great degree of hardship. Oh dear. Yes. Tenneth <laughs> and Mary, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thank you. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please do pick up a copy of the magazine to read all the stories in full. I'm William Moore, and I hope you'll join me again next week.